Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by author and journalist Ian Ballantyne, and we take a look at the role of submarines and submarine hunters in the build-up to D-Day and their vital role in the Allied victory that ended World War II. And just before we begin, I just want to say a huge thank you to everybody who has been listening to this podcast. I've had some wonderful five-star reviews on Apple. I appreciate all of those. So thank you so much for everybody who's given a five-star review. We had three in a row, um, which is amazing. So thank you. Please keep those reviews coming. Every new review helps other people discover the show. Just to not get too technical, but uh, with regards to Apple and most other podcast apps, they tend to feature podcasts that are getting frequent reviews. It's to do with the algorithms and the way that app works. So the more reviews we get, the more like, more activity Apple is seeing and the more likely they're going to push the podcast up a few notches so other people discover it. So uh, yeah, please keep those reviews coming. I also want to just say a huge thank you for supporting the show. If you like what I'm doing, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber. You can go to patreon.com forward slash dry cleaner cast there is actually a link to that website if you click on the image in your podcast app there is also a paypal link where you can just leave me a tip Um, so if you like what i'm doing you can leave me a small tip to say good job and i'll say thank you in advance for that thank you we also have a wonderful website which is www.drycleanercast.co.uk in this episode today we talk a little bit about how you can actually see some of the submarines and ships involved in the d-day preparation so i'll put some links in the uh, the show notes on the website so do check that out um so without further ado we will begin so thank you again for listening and i really hope you enjoy this show and i just want to say a huge huge thank you to all the veterans of world war ii who are out there still at the moment we really wouldn't be living the lives we are today if it wasn't for their sacrifice so i just want to say a huge thank you to all the world war ii veterans out there if any of you are listening thank you and now we will begin take care Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Ian, welcome back to the podcast. Hello. Just before we begin, for the benefit of new listeners, can you just tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm an editor of a naval news magazine called Warships International Fruit Review that's sold around the world, but I write naval history books. I've done several of those, and recently it's about being about submarines, uh, a book called The Deadly Trade in the UK, which is a comprehensive history of submarine warfare uh, called the deadly deep in america and also hunter killers uh, which was about a group of submarine captains and other british submariners during the cold war which is um, due for publication in the usa soon as underwater warriors so i mean that's where i've been recently but i've also written books like killing the bismarck on the bismarck action i've written two there another one called bismarck 24 hours to doom and um um, profiles of warships, um, HMS Rodney, a battleship, and also HMS Warspite, another battleship. So 
a, a sort of potpourri of stuff. Yeah, fantastic. Well, we're going to kind of look a little bit at the deadly trade today because we've got major anniversaries of World War Two coming up. We've got the 75th anniversary of D-Day and the 80th anniversary of World War Two starting in September. So I thought it'd be a good idea to have a bit of a chat about World War Two. Um, and I want us to have a kind of look at some of the, the sort of naval action that was going on, especially obviously from a submarine point of view. Um, I guess we'll just start with the North Atlantic in 1939 to 43 with the sort of German U-boat menace. Can you just talk to us a bit about this time? I think that the, uh, the way it can be described is that there were various phases in which the Germans would have the upper hand and the British and the Allies would uh, would have a difficult time. But then it was a bit like um, one potato, two potato. The uh, the U-boat force would uh, sink lots of ships, let's say, in 1940, and then the British would uh, sort out their convoy system, which was imposed from the beginning of the war, but didn't have uh, quite the escorts that it needed to uh, attack the U-boats. And then the U-boats would come back with wolf packs, which uh, you may have heard of, which were these groups of uh, U-boats coordinated by radio to savage convoys if they could. And the British then would try and gain a technological edge with radar and signals interception and, of course, code breaking. And then they would be able to get uh, the hang of uh, beating the U-boat menace again. But then I think by 1944, there were great fears that new German submarines were going to come along. And uh, there was this concept that Admiral Donitz, the head of the submarine force in the Kriegsmarine, and in fact the German Navy by then, had come up with called Total Underwater Warfare. And by 1944, there were uh, huge fears that new submarines and uh, what they called Total Underwater Warfare would give the Germans another chance at actually defeating the Allies in, in the Atlantic, in, actually in, in 1944. So these convoys that were attacked, they were bringing in sort of vital supplies to Britain, weren't they? And, they, and this is what led to you know, a lot of shortages for the civilian population. Is that right? Yes. I mean, the, the main thing to understand is that I don't think in World War II the civilian population of the UK, for example, was going to starve to death. But um, what had to happen was things had to be rationed uh, that came from overseas uh, in order to fit more war materials into ships. Mm. And so it was was the fact that the war effort had to predominate that meant that uh, you couldn't import the same level of foodstuffs that you might normally have been able to in, in peacetime. And that's a, I wouldn't say it's a, a myth or a misconception, but that's something that needs to be understood. The idea on the German side was that they would destroy the flow of oil and iron ore yeah. and ammunition and other war materials to Britain in that part of the war between 39 and 41 to force the British to actually negotiate some kind of peace deal. So in World War I, uh, U-boats nearly did come uh, to the point where they starved the British population. But in World War II, I would say that the problem was the war materials could be cut off and therefore Britain would have to give up the fight. Yeah, so if we had no bullets and no oil, that means you know it's going to be quite useless, really. Yeah, well, I think oil was very important. And um, it's a funny thing that when they were advising the Japanese um, in the Pacific about what they should do to uh, destroy the Allied war effort, they said, what you must do above oil is... is above oil, <laughs> good one, <laughs> above all... Is um is <laughs> sorry about that <laughs> is uh, is attack the oil tankers destroy the oil yeah. tankers, but the Japanese were obsessed with seeking aircraft carriers and uh, capital ships, and the Germans were saying the Americans can replace those, but if you destroy their oil, they can't you know fuel their war effort and carry on with uh, their push 
uh, across the Pacific. So I think oil was a was a top target throughout the war. Uh, and then, of course, anything that went to towards either making weaponry or, for example, Sherman tanks uh, for the British uh, in North Africa and, of course, for D-Day and troops, you know, anything you could do to destroy that flow across the Atlantic, that bridge from America to Britain um, between 39 and 41 to keep Britain in the fight and then from 41 to 45 to keep the whole uh, Western Allied uh, effort in in. In, in action was uh, was the main objective of the U-boats. Yeah, and this was, so between 39 and 43, this is probably, is it arguably the most intense period for the Northern Atlantic? Yeah, it did peak in 1943. There was, um, it, it's often um, considered uh, that the Battle of the Atlantic ended in 1943, but of course it didn't. It just changed and moved mm-hmm. elsewhere. And throughout the war, Admiral Donitz was always looking um, at where he could send his U-boats to sink the most and do the most damage with the least uh, losses, if he could, to his own side. So, for example, um, he would, um, earlier on in the war, think, I can actually send U-boats to the Caribbean and prey on the Caribbean trade because it's not so well protected and it isn't as well organized in terms of protection. Uh, And the same goes for off the um, coast of America after America came into the war in the early period. They weren't so efficient in anti-submarine warfare off the coast of the USA. So he would always send his U-boats to parts of the world, whether it was the Indian Ocean, the Caribbean, or off the coast of the USA, where he thought they could do uh, the most damage. So what happened in the North Atlantic in 1943 was he had to go to Hitler and say, this isn't working, we're losing too many U-boats, too many people, and this is, we'll have to withdraw from the Atlantic. Uh, but then he told uh, the Fuhrer, we will go back. And in fact, they did go back. Uh, later on in 1943 with what they hoped were war-winning technologies like homing torpedoes and using these things called snorkels to keep submarines uh, under the sea all the time. Uh, And so he hoped invisible to the Allies. So there were were phases in the Battle of the Atlantic that continued after uh, 1943. So it didn't end in May 1943 as is sometimes uh, perceived. Yeah, well... In particular, between 1943 and 44, um, things did start to change in this battle against U-boats. Um, and one figure who stands out in particular is Captain Walker. Mm-hmm. So he was in command of the Second Escort Group. Can you so can you just tell us about sort of what changed in that time and how um, the you know the Navy responded to the U-boat menace? Frederick Walker uh, is very famous. He's um, the top U-boat uh, killer uh, on the British side. In World War II, and his escort group, the second escort group, uh, notched up the most uh, amount of kills, uh, was up there at the top when it comes to a number of U-boats sunk. And he was a particularly aggressive and um, deeply um, intuitive submarine hunter. And he'd been an anti-submarine warfare specialist between the wars, and he hadn't been promoted because he was too often uh, fond of speaking his mind about how they need to improve things to combat submarines. So when the war came along, people like him uh, were uh, coming into their own. And another guy called uh, Peter Gretton, who was also a top uh, escort group commander, uh, was also uh, prominent in the fight. And it's interesting that Peter Gretton, who uh, became an admiral and uh, an academic after the war, said that before the Battle of the Atlantic, uh, a lot of British escort captains didn't actually think. They didn't think their way around problems in the way that they should to destroy U-boats. But the Battle of the Atlantic forced them to. And what, what uh, played a leading role in 
tightening up the tactics and the efficiency of the uh, destroyers and the corvettes and other ships that were hunting U-boats was a thing called the um, uh, Western Approaches Tactical Unit, which was based in Liverpool alongside Western Approaches Command, which was where they coordinated, the British coordinated the whole of the Battle of the Atlantic. And the Western Approaches Tactical Unit, uh, run by a guy um, who was a senior captain who'd at one time been uh, a submariner, and he he talked to... Um, um, Johnny Walker, as he was known, Frederick Walker, as he was known, about what do we do about U-boats? And he had discussions with lots of escort captains. And Johnny Walker came up with various tactics to um, introduce on being attacked by a U-boat, uh, such as um, one was called um, Buttercup. And what would happen is um, if a U-boat attack came in, then Walker would um, initiate the Buttercup response. So a signal would go out to most of the escorts and they would go off in various directions away from a convoy, firing illumination rockets and star shells to catch the U-boats, which usually at that time of the war, which is uh, 40, 41, 42, would attack on the surface. So then they would go off like a starburst and then hopefully catch these U-boats um, attacking the convoy. And then there were other, other tactics as well that were given outlandish names. Um, and these were all worked up by the WATU and uh, Captain Walker and other escort captains. And uh, so, for example, with Raspberry, uh, if an escort group uh, received the code word Raspberry, strangely enough, um, then they would all, uh, they would aim to turn the whole of the night, because normally U-boats attacked at night, into day by foreign rockets and star shells. So there were all these different plans for how to, cut, how to counter U-boats. So there was a revolution in tactics and also a revolution in technology with so um well asdic sonar was already there but surface radar again to catch u-boats on the surface and then weaponry uh, uh um, depth bombs rather than just depth charges to actually eliminate a u-boat with one hit so i don't know if that answers your question but there was uh, an immense effort mm. um underway and, and frederick walker was one of the most um adept aggressive and uh, effective escort group captains and i think um 1944 really did see the peak of the efficiency for the second escort group because they were able to um sink uh, a, a large number of u-boats in a very short time because um walker came up with this thing called the creeping attack so, so johnny walker had a particularly busy time january february 1944 with a where he just basically hunted down a large number of u-boats can you sort of talk to us about that and those sort of tactics he used the idea behind what you might call a surge of escort groups going out to do uh, an intensive series of, of sweeps uh, to, to simplify it was to clear the seas uh, of as many u-boats as they could prior to uh, D-Day. So there was a massive preparation period at sea with escort groups trying to kill as many submarines as they could so that it would be less of a threat against the invasion force and also the flow of supplies across the Atlantic. So uh, in late January and early uh, uh, February, sorry, mid-February 1944, Walker took the five warships of the second escort group out and he actually sank um, six U-boats and um, at that particular time, Donitz had 26 submarines in the North Atlantic and also in the Mid-Atlantic. And so they had to be found if they could and be eliminated, essentially. 
So the submarine tracking room, as it was called in the uh, in the Admiralty, was able to buy wireless intelligence and also code breaking and all sorts of other intelligence input, able to tell Walker this, this amount of submarines were out there and give him ideas where he could go and, and, and hunt them down. So Walker took them out, and um, on the 31st of January, his own ship, uh, Starling, uh, sank uh, U-592, and then they carried on until they'd notched up six. And they had this tactic called the creeping attack, and that would involve a ship, and often this would be Walker's own ship, um, HMS Starling, uh, slowing right down, uh, which would make herself undetectable to the U-boat's hydrophones, because the, the main means of a U-boat finding out if somebody was hunting her was to listen via hydrophones for the noise of the escort. So uh, Starling would slow down to make herself undetectable and would use her own uh, ASDIC or sonar to hold that submarine uh, in what was called the ASDIC cone. And in the meantime, another escort would be directed in um, to carry out the kill. And then it would, what would happen would be the whole, a whole ring of escorts would be positioned around this one unfortunate U-boat and uh, they would they would rush in uh, and, and it, these hunts could take hours they would rush in when called in basically by walking he'd probably do that with light signal um, or you know very brief uh, radio transmission if he had to but they would know what to do anyway because they were well trained so they would rush in from the circle while walker's ship held the u-boat in the aztec so they knew exactly where where to either fire their um hedgehog depth bombs or drop their depth charges. And that was a, a very, very effective means of uh, sinking U-boats. And lots of uh, German submariners were killed in, in that fashion. So um, in sinking the U-boats and making sure that submariners never came home, um, Captain Walker was doing what he thought was his, his best to ensure the success of the uh, Allied war effort and the D-Day invasion. It was brutal and it was merciless, really. Yeah. Just a quick one. What's the difference between a depth charge and a depth bomb? A depth charge is set to detonate at a certain depth, so 250 feet, 50 feet, 500 feet. And so that the uh, escort warship would uh, steam up and hold the U-boat, hopefully, in its, so, its ASDIC cone. And this is why they use the creeping attack. If you, if you were one warship and you held a U-boat in your ASDIC cone, you, you, you eventually would lose... Because the ASDIC's on the front of the ship, underneath, you would eventually lose the U-boat position, the exact position on, on the sonar, ASDIC, whatever you want to call it, because you would have to pass over it because your depth charges would come off the side and the stern of the vessel. So it wasn't um, quite as accurate as one vessel, and hence the creeping attack, fixing the U-boat for attack. So um, you, can, you can drop depth charges on a U-boat, and they are set to explode at a certain depth, and um, they will um, hopefully um, either shatter its hull and it will blow up, or they will make it um, damage it such that it sinks until it implodes, or that it has to surface. And that was quite often what happened. A depth bomb is uh, basically a projectile that you fire forward to plunge into the sea, and it will only destroy a U-boat, and they were more effective than depth charges because they would shatter a U-boat and, and blow it apart if you hit it. Whereas with a depth charge, you could surround a U-boat with um, these um, massive barrels full of explosives going off and gradually cause such damage that it surfaced or sank. Mm. With a depth bomb, you had to hit 
the target to know that you destroyed it and explode and you know and then th- that it had been destroyed. So if a depth bomb didn't hit a submarine, then you had no idea. Um, you know, it would it wouldn't uh, detonate, and therefore you would you would fail. Um, they did develop new variants of depth bombs, which were more accurate. They were easier to um, program. And they were even more effective. So mm. that's a very simple explanation. Just wrapping up with the second escort group. So in their career during World War Two, they actually sunk 23 U-boats. Is that right? Yes. Um, that's by the uh, the end of the war. So uh, some ships served with the escort group throughout the war. And um, I think the last kill was in 1945 on the 16th of April by Loch Killen off Start Point. Yeah. Uh, in the channel, but they didn't get it all their own way. Some vessels were themselves sunk uh, by the U-boats um, when they attacked the escort groups. But Cor- Walker himself, uh, unfortunately, um, was worn out by the effort of war and the stress and strain of it and actually died before War's End. In fact, um, he he didn't really get to see uh, the fulfillment of um, all his hard work uh, in World War II across the war because, um, unfortunately, uh, in early July '44. Um, he passed away and it was a, a great shock to the British and he was taken out to sea and given a ceremonial burial at sea. So um, the war did have huge impact on um, lots of people and uh, only were lots of U-boat um, crews killed and escorts and merchant Navy sailors killed. But obviously some of those that were hunting the U-boats were unfortunately succumbed due to other reasons. Yeah. So D-Day is sort of coming up and the Royal Navy has been called upon to provide strategic intelligence about the targeting of landing sites for Allied forces for D-Day. And this is where midget submarines come into the picture. And in fact, um, crews are selected who have experience with hunting U-boats as well. Yeah. Can you talk to us about these sort of midget submarines, what kind of missions they went on, the kind of people who crewed them? X-Craft is, uh, is the official name for the UK's midget submarines. But the X-Craft had proven very effective uh, against uh, the Tirpitz um, in 1943. They were sent up into a fjord to damage the Tirpitz. Didn't sink the Tirpitz, but put her out of action. The game was to keep her from deploying to sea to attack convoys. So they proved that they were very effective against uh, battleships and capital ships in sneaking underneath them and dropping explosive charges, huge amounts of explosive underneath and they were used in that role right up until the war's end, uh, especially in, against Japanese um, targets and the Pacific as well. But the X-Craft was also ideal for going close inshore off the projected in- invasion beaches with um, teams of commandos and others to go ashore and um, look at the composition of the beaches, um, how how appropriate they were for an invasion, whether they could take certain uh, certain vessels where they could land mm-hmm. tanks and where they could put them off safely, the gradients, the composition of the beaches, and also the scale of defences that have been erected uh, to the so-called Atlantic Wall to prevent the Allies from getting ashore. So there was this massive operation that also involved um, major torpedo boats landing people covertly as well. And But one of the um, most interesting missions that happened was the X-craft that were sent across a few days before the invasion, I had to lie on the bottom of the uh, invasion beaches um, in uh, not terribly great conditions because, of course, they couldn't just pop up and open the hatch to get some fresh air. They had to sit down there and wait um, for the right moment to actually put uh, navigation lights up that were shielded from the, the shore side 
but showed a navigation light out to see from where the invasion vessels could come in. And that was uh, a job that a submarine called um, X-23 uh, did, and, and others, other aircraft did it as well. X-20 and X-23 uh, were the uh, British submarines, uh, the aircraft that played quite a key role. And they, um, they were working with a unit called the Combined Operations Pilotage and Reconnaissance Party, or COP, which was a very bland name for this kind of super-secret espionage effort. And uh, so one of those uh, officers was a, a young um, lieutenant called Jim Booth, who was sent across in X-23. And um, they uh, were actually forced to sit on the bottom for longer than they, they wanted to, because, of course, the invasion was postponed uh, for a short while due to bad weather. So um, he and the, the other people um, uh, in his boat, uh, X-23, commanded by a guy called Lieutenant George Honor, uh, sat there and uh, at one stage, and this, this is something that um, I met um, Jim Booth on Sword Beach itself mm. in, in 2004 and had a chat with him, yeah, and um, he, um, he, they were able. X 23s uh, men were actually able to watch uh, the Germans on the Sunday before the invasion, um, playing games on the beach, and um, they were being watched. They didn't know it by um, this sort of tiny periscope, having a look at them. I don't know what they were doing. They were probably playing football or whatever they were doing. Uh, totally unaware that within a few days uh, or a few hours that uh, the invasion force would come along and. Uh, their, you know, Sunday games would be a thing of the past, you know. So, I mean, he was an incredible man. I mean, he wrote a piece for my magazine as well um, and uh, told how he would, um, he was given um, fake papers so that if he had to go ashore, um, he could try and escape with the help of the French resistance. And he said that um, he didn't think he'd get very far because um, in his photographs, he just looked too British. So <laughs> certain the Germans would catch him. So, I mean, um, he had uh, previous experience, as you, as you uh, suggested, of the war mm. at sea. So a lot of these people had been in escorts um, and in other parts of the Navy, but they just tr they just fancied having a go at something a little bit different. D-Day was actually delayed because of the weather, so they had to sit there um, and wait, didn't they? Yeah, well, I mean, he, he said to me that what happened was on um, at uh, 15 minutes past 11 on June the 4th, he, uh, X-23 surfaced, and this would be obviously in the dark, so the Germans would very unlikely to see them. And they, they had to put up an aerial mm. to receive a coded message, which famously was embedded in a BBC uh, broadcast. And uh, that told them when they heard that, that code word, whether or not the invasion was actually going to happen. And he said that um, the message, they eventually got the message at 1am, uh, sat there on the surface with their aerial up listening on their radio and in plain language with this code word in this BBC broadcast. Um, said basically the invasion had been postponed for 24 hours. So after after hearing that the uh, invasion had been postponed, uh, they decided they would <laughs> sit on the bottom again. So I had to go through the rigmarole of dis dismounting uh, the radio masts and then take X-23 down, sit there uh, serving their energy, probably sleeping or lying wherever they could in that very cramped interior to just get rest. And it became, you know, hot and smelly as they waited. But, you know, the bad weather uh, forced the delay. So when eventually uh, the time came at 4.30 a.m. on the 6th of June, X-23 surfaced and then put up her navigation aids. And um, Jim Booth was, uh, was, was had a ringside seat as, as the invasion craft came in, hopefully avoiding 
obviously his boat and that sort of navigation aid, a light uh, that had been put up that they could follow. And uh, he was absolutely stunned by the sort of endless waves of landing crafts and the, um, the noise of the bombardment was absolutely immense. Uh, but the thing was, they had succeeded in guiding in these um, these guys aboard their invasion uh, vessels. And uh, so they had played a key role in ensuring that everything went um, according to plan as much as it could, because, of course, any military plan descended to chaos. But they helped ensure at least the troops got ashore to the right place, hopefully. Yeah. Wow. Is Jim is Jim Booth still about, or has he passed on now? He is, he is. He's still around, I believe. He's... Um, He's, uh, there aren't many of them left now, but um, I mean, I spoke to him in 2004, and um, as far as I'm aware, he is. And um, so th- hopefully he'll be over there this year, uh, joining in all the commemorations. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. So um, after the success of D-Day, Allied ships are now parked off the coasts of Normandy, some of them um, off the Mulberry Harbour that have been constructed. And all these boats have now become targets for um, German retaliation. Can you talk to us about some of the threats that these the Allied ships faced and what was done to kind of counter them? Yeah, I mean, if you um, um, watch The Longest Day, the um, movie of Cornelius Ryan's uh, excellent book, uh, you do kind of get the idea that um, there was a couple of uh, German fighters flew along the beach and uh, did a bit of strafing, and then that was it. But in fact, there was a sustained air effort to um, mm. sink ships throughout, you know, uh, I would say... June, July and August, you know, for when, when the Allied armies eventually broke out, of course, there was no need for the Germans to make the effort because the, the Allied um, flotilla or the Allied Armada off the beaches withdrew. But there was, you know, there was a massive and well, I suppose massive is the wrong word, but so the Luftwaffe wasn't um, capable of the effort mm. that it used to. There was certainly a, a sustained effort by uh, the Luftwaffe to bomb uh, and otherwise attack um, British, American, Allied, you know, Polish multinational warships and supply vessels and landing, landing vessels yeah. off the beachhead. So that was very hectic. And then there were mines. Mine, mines were sown in the seas uh, by small boats, probably dropped by aircraft as well. And mines claimed quite a few ships as well. And that was a, a severe danger. And also there was um, various um, human torpedoes uh, were launched by a special um, outfit, um, mainly run by the Waffen-SS, to try and sink battleships on basically suicide missions. And there were mini-submarines as well. So there was all sorts of things going on. And um, there were periods when the Allies were particularly worried that um, they were going to get badly hit. But, of course, code-breaking and intercepts um, often enabled the, uh, the Allied side to get full warning of when, for example an air attack was being um, considered and they would go send their own aircraft to bomb those airfields and take them out. Or they would know that there was going to be a special effort made to mine the waters off the invasion beaches or these um, mini submarines and um, um, uh, human torpedoes were on the loose. Hmm. So what, can you just tell us a little bit about these human torpedoes? I don't have to get too technical, but uh, literally is it just people sitting and steering a torpedo? The basic concept of it was that they had... The Germans would uh, get a torpedo uh, and then convert it into something that um, uh, a pilot could sit in. And he would sit inside a tiny cockpit inside this uh, adapted torpedo um, and pilot this thing. Um, And the V3, as it was called, 
had a conventional torpedo underneath it. So it was slung underneath it. And then the idea was that they would sneak in um, to launch a torpedo at, um, let's say, HMS Rodney, a battleship that the Germans particularly hated because she'd been using her massive guns to um, disrupt and destroy um, armour and uh, other, other formations building up to attack the Allied beachheads. So they, she was a special target. So these V3s were uh, capable of being launched from any shore virtually, and they, they would uh, be sent out um, in sort of little swarms to, to go and um, attack Rodney or other vessels. And um, at one stage, uh, they managed to capture a Polish uh, vessel, managed to capture a, uh, a V3 and also the pilot of this uh, this man torpedo. And um, they interrogated him, probably not too gently, and uh, found out that um, 50 of these V3s were being prepared in some factory buildings along the coast to the east of uh, Sword Beach. And so um, HMS Rodney was given this intelligence um, and sent um, down the, sh- uh, the coast a little bit and used her 16-inch gu- guns, which fired a massive one-ton shell to absolutely obliterate this base. So that was part of the kind of German attempt to sink the Allied vessels and the Allies using their advantages to go and wipe them out. So those were um, that was one aspect. But the, Ger- the Germans also had um, other small vessels, and they had swarms of these going out into the Channel, and uh, throughout um, 1944 and uh, towards the end of the war as well. And uh, one of them was called um, the Bieber or Beaver, and another one was called the Seahund or the Seal. And um, the Bieber was a one-man craft, and dozens of them were, um, until spring 1945, sent out from Dutch ports against channel shipping, feeding the, uh, the Allied advance uh, whilst trying to get supplies into Europe. Uh, for the Allied armies. And then the Seahund uh, was a two-man vessel. And this um, this carried a pair of torpedoes or mines. And uh, it was considered almost a proper submarine. So uh, it was sent out and uh, dozens of them would go off the east coast of England and try and get into shallow waters, offshore waters, and sink merchant ships there. So they didn't have a huge um, success rate. And um, often their crews were actually killed by carbon monoxide poisoning, and they were very risky and dangerous uh, craft to, to take on. But it was a sign of um, uh, desperation by that time because yeah. conventional U-boats had failed to make any impact, really much impact at all, on the invasion. Yeah. yeah. Well, during the summer of 1944, things got even more exciting um, as a German plan was being developed to uh, to launch rockets at New York. Um, can you talk to us a bit yeah. about this sort of this plot? Yeah, this is, um, I suppose, has its, um, I wouldn't call it amusing, but it has its mm. kind of strange um, aspects, you know, that kind of might make you smile a little bit. But it was um concept really of a, quite a notorious character called uh, Lieutenant Colonel Otto Scorzani, who was a Waffen SS commando, who was uh, famous for um, rescuing uh, the Italian dictator Mussolini uh, during a glider, a glider uh, assault on a, ski resort where Mussolini was being held uh, captive, having uh, been deposed. And Scorzani rescued him. And it sounds very Ian Fleming there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Scorzani rescued him, put him in the glider, took him all... Uh, not, he didn't put him in the glider. He put him in a, um, a storch, a Pfizer storch, a, a small aircraft. So Scorzani had come in with his um, SS commandos and rescued 
uh, Mussolini, stuck him in a, a light aircraft, flew him away, and off he went. And then he also, Scorzani was also notorious for uh, blackmailing the uh, leader of Hungary, which was a, an Axis ally, into staying in the war on the side of Germany by kidnapping his son. Uh, this was uh, Admiral Hordy's son, uh, Nicholas Jr., putting him in a carpet, rolling it up, flying him to Germany, where he was held hostage. So he was a man who came up with incredible schemes, not least in late 1944, uh, parallel with this V1 thing, um, almost. He came up with the idea of, uh, during the Battle of the Bulge, infiltrating um, German troops behind uh, Allied lines by dressing them up um, as uh, US troops and giving them American equipment. So he was quite a um, innovative but also controversial mm-hmm. character. And he, he, um, he'd been looking at the development of the V1, the, uh, like the first cruise missile that was used by the Germans uh, to, uh, to attack Britain, uh, launched across the, uh, the channel against London and elsewhere. So he thought, well, I wonder if we could put somebody in a V1 uh, cruise missile and, um, and then pilot it onto a target. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, is it Operation Crossbow? Oh, do you know, I haven't seen that one. Remember no, that movie that from... One. Right, okay. It was, I think it was in the late 1960s. It uh, was about an attempt by the Allies to send people in to destroy uh, the V2 factories in Germany. And, uh, but mm. at the beginning of that movie, you saw uh, a woman called Hannah Reich, um, who was um, a pilot who uh, was um, a great... Um, hero in Nazi Germany, who in the movie Operation Crossroads seen piloting V1s, climbing in this cockpit in a V1 and then piloting it uh, um, on a test area, I think in the Baltic, and then landing the V1. Uh, there have been some male pilots who tried that, volunteers who were killed. So she said, well, I can do it. And so she w- was working with Scorzani on this idea that you could put a pilot in a V1. So Scorzani goes to see... Um, Himmler, the head of the uh, the SS, and uh, says, um, I think we could use these piloted V1s to um, to attack Allied shipping, and maybe we could pilot a V1 to give it greater accuracy because they were unguided once they left their launch pads in uh, in in uh, continental Europe. So Scorzani thought, well, let's put a pilot in, pilot this V1, and send it into Allied shipping, or we could target the um, the uh, Palace of Westminster, take out the British government. That's a great idea, isn't it? And Himmler turned around to him and said, actually, that's a good way to bombard New York. And so Scorzani was thinking, what? And uh, so he now had the job of coming up with a scheme to send V1s, piloted V1s, to actually take out New York to punish America for bombing Germany with uh, B-17s. And so that's how this project started. And, uh, And he took it forward. And uh, he didn't get very far with it. So, uh, but the problem was that uh, for the Allies is that, in a way, it was uh, a benefit that they found out about it. But the big problem for the Allies was that they actually um, took it seriously, um, and they didn't know whether or not this would happen. So they had to make, uh, they had to take countermeasures against this uh, threatened uh, V1 blitz of New York, and uh, they they had all sorts of uh, plans ready to counter it, and it all reached a peak. Um, in the spring of 1945, when they thought a, um, uh, a wolf pack of um, V1 carrying U-boats had been sent against uh, New York. And they, they sent out um, task groups to eliminate one by one all these U-boats. And it was a, an operation that um, 
was pursued with utmost vigour, and it was called Operation Teardrop. And um, they they one by one destroyed this entire um, wolf pack. But in reality, um, Scorzoni could never get um, the V1s released to him for launch again. I don't, and although the Germans did experiment and carry out tests with all sorts of missiles and rockets, uh, they did, never did perfect the idea. But the Allies were absolutely um, scared stiff of um, them doing it. So he mm. did have an impact, but um, it never came off. So he created fear and pandemonium in New York. Um, but uh, he didn't actually um, manage to attack New York. Yeah, because that fear of um, New York being attacked um, towards the end of the war kind of felt like a, a German last-ditch attempt scorched earth kind of um, attack on America, <laughs> and uh, and it panicked a lot of people, didn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, I mean, it, I think part of the plan was that they would um, have people sent ashore who would set up uh, targeting um, beacons or some kind of means of of uh, them following a beam um, or the pilots um, tuning into a signal so they could um, take out the skyscrapers like the uh, Empire State Building. I think it was part of that whole idea that, the, that you know, the vengeance weapons, that we can, we can turn it all around uh, if we can just find this one weapon that will take them out of uh, America, out of the war, or, you know, cause such damage that the Allies capitulate. But it, it didn't happen. And, um, and there were people in the Allied... Um, hierarchy said this will never happen it's daft but i'm afraid it had to be taken seriously so operation T- teardrop was launched um and went out to find this wolf pack in april uh, 1945 and uh, destroyed it basically like what we're doing connect with us on twitter at dry cleaner cast Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. After D-Day, the U-boat mission sort of slightly changed a bit and their focus became the British coast. Um, and it was the targets of Allied forces moving from Britain to Europe. And there was intelligence painting a picture of a new U-boat threat um, in the shape of this uh, new U-boat called the X-21 or Type 21 that um, could outrun and outgun Allied naval forces. Can you sort of talk to us about the X-21 and the, the, the kind of the threat it potentially posed versus the, the real threat? The thing about submarines is that um, some are submersibles and some are true submarines. Um, and so this is the thing that the uh, Germans were pursuing. They wanted to have a submarine that could leave a port. In fact, all navies have been after it. And in fact, we now have it in nuclear-powered submarines. But in World War II, uh, the standard submarine, the Type uh, 7 was, uh, and the Type 9s, they were diesel-electric submarines. So they would have to um, surface to um, recharge their batteries, get rid of fumes when using diesel their diesel engines to recharge their batteries and they were they were like um they were vessels attack vessels that when they needed to could dive so the whole um effort uh, in terms of cutting edge technology was to try and find a submarine that would need minimal time on the surface or wouldn't need to be on the surface at all so one step forward was to come up with the um um come up with the snorkel which means you poke 
uh, you poke something up above the sea and uh, surface of the sea and you take in air and you evacuate fumes. But then there was also the idea that you could um, you could have propulsion that relied less and less on having to expose yourself. So the Type 21 um, wanted to um, had in higher endurance batteries. It was a faster boat under the sea and due to the snorkel, um, it could uh, stay under and invisible to the enemy. So the, the Allies knew that these things were being built and um, they were determined to track them down. And, uh, well, not track them down, but eliminate the construction of, uh, of these vessels because they were um, formidable if they worked. And if enough of them could be got to sea at the end of the war, they could have an impact. That was the great fear. And they, had, um, they could do a, a, a range of 450 miles at three knots, which is very slow, but gives them time creep up on on a target or they could um they had a, a very fast submerged speed of 18 knots which meant it was very difficult to catch them by with any other submarine and also surface ships would have a problem keeping track of them and uh, so they they had the ability to fire uh, torpedoes at a faster rate um than you know it could fire 18 torpedoes in 20 minutes and that was a formidable amount of um, torpedoes so you could attack a convoy, stay hidden, and then fire um, sophisticated, let's say sophisticated homing torpedoes or just magnetic detonated torpedoes. They fire 18 of them and take out, so the Germans hoped, uh, most of a convoy in a very short time. So they were truly formidable vessels. And uh, they, uh, they were built in sections around the Reich and then assembled in the Baltic. And uh, so there was a huge effort underway uh, to bomb those build yards and those construction yards and to try and uh, interfere with anything that would allow the Type 21 to get to sea. Largely succeeded, really, because, you know, getting a submarine into service uh, depends upon uh, lots of sea trials and perfecting operating procedures, making the boats seaworthy, proving the weapons work, and that's very, very time-consuming. And um, if you can interfere with building the boat, and if you can, for example... Uh, advancing uh, Allied Army managed to take um, a, a construction yard where they were making modules for Type 21 submarines, which were supposed to be floated to the build yards down the river, the river system. And they they um, they were able to cause huge disruption because, of course, then various parts of the Type 21 were not available, or the bombing of um, the build yards would cause disruption as well. So there was a lot of a lot of um, uh, interruption in the progress of building the Type 21. And that was, that was the, really the best effort the Allies could make was to stop these boats getting into the water. And there were only 50, um, in early 1945, there were only 50 uh, near completion. Um, and it's probably just as well uh, that there, there were very few of them. And there weren't, there weren't that many that, that got to sea. And I think there was um, uh, one uh, patrol that was conducted um, and it was just too late. And um, so, you know, they, they didn't have an impact. But the, again, the fear of what would happen uh, if these things got to sea uh, was immense. Yeah, definitely. And we didn't really have any, well, the Allies didn't really have anything that compared to it, did they? Um, there were supposedly efforts underway um, to adapt some of the British submarines that were a bit faster to be um, hunters and killers of these boats. Um, but 
in the end, you know, had they managed to get them to see in big numbers, they would have been uh, a handful. And, um, you know, it is said that, um, and this shouldn't be forgotten when we're talking about wonder weapons uh, created by the Germans in World War II, there would be countermeasures created too. There were various technical problems with them that they that stopped them getting to service as quickly as they should. And then when they got their mind out, they had, I think, uh, 28... Um, uh, sorry, they had um, 50 near completion by early 1945 and only a few, uh, only two, in fact, only two Type 21s ever went out on a combat patrol. And, of course, you've got to have people to um, to crew these uh, these boats. And if you don't have people, then there's no point in having a submarine. So keeping the, th- the throughput of trained people to go out uh, when you're, you're suffering horrendous casualties already in the U-boat war is immensely difficult. You know, 30,000 out of 40,000 U-boat sailors in World War II were killed and a lot were captured. So if you don't have the people, you can come up with all the wonder weapons you like um, and it won't actually help you at all. So I think Admiral Donitz was very angry that he didn't get more resources earlier in the war to um, create new submarines. But... um, that's the way it happened, and he he didn't get um, he only got two to see on a combat patrol. Do you think had the Germans managed to deploy the X twenty one a lot earlier, do you think it could have changed things dramatically? Had they um, deployed the Type twenty one, I'm sure it would have given the Royal Navy and the U.S. Navy and the Allied navies a bit of a headache. But I'm pretty sure also that they would have been able to uh, coordinate the many many escort groups, the aerial um, superiority, and also their tactics and how they would get these boats before they could actually break out into the open ocean or get them as Mm. close to base as possible or come up with um, a refinement to the hedgehog or the squid, the anti-submarine bomb um, weapons. And of course, the ultra, you know, information, the um, Bletchley Park, you know, code breakers were providing information all the time. So I think what would have happened was there would have been perhaps another phase where there was a lot of damage caused. But then as it happened in 1941, 1943, uh, and of course in 1944, the um, the Allies would have uh, got got the upper hand. I'm sure of it. But it would have been um, pretty tricky, and it would have caused some sleepless nights and a lot of damage. Yeah, but I think I don't think the Germans, uh, even if they got let's say 20 or 30 of them out there, I don't. I think in the end, um, the, the Allies would have prevailed again because there was just such industrial, economic, and numerical superiority by that time mm, mm. i mean the interesting thing about the u-boat war at the time of the normandy invasion was that um because the u-boats had withdrawn from the open atlantic and were no longer working in wolf packs um it actually made things more difficult for the allies because um if you're going to use um intercepts of um wireless signals and then break uh, encrypted wireless signals and then break them to find out where U-boats are assembling, where they're gathering, what convoy they're moving against. So, of course, the enemy has to give you that signals traffic for you to intercept and for you to um, penetrate. But, of course, if you have been pushed back into the Bay of Biscay uh, or waters off Norway or the Channel or whatever, you're, you're no longer operating on the open ocean as a wolf pack. So that signals traffic isn't there. And you're closer to home. So that was one problem for the Allies. And the other problem was because the U-boats, uh, even before the D-Day invasion, was starting to operate in the coastal waters around the UK, trying to intercept um, 
uh, merchant ships with uh, supplies and troops on and working against convoys in the coastal areas. It meant, it meant that ASDIC um, wasn't so effective because, of course, the clutter of the seabed, like rock pinnacles and uh, other things, was um, and wrecks, ships lying in, you know, was, was um, a very, very difficult uh, challenge for the Allies. So, in fact, a lot of the technology that worked on the open ocean didn't work as well as it should do, and also the tactics. So that was a really difficult period, um, I would say, for the Allied escort groups attacking and hunting U-boats, and some rock pinnacles off Cornwall were blasted to bits, and some some wrecks were visited numerous times. But uh, the the superiority uh, in the air of the Allied air forces that could um, prowl and uh, attack U-boats coming out from uh, bases in the French Atlantic ports uh, was overwhelming. That was to start with. And then once they, if they could get across the Bay of Biscay, um, that, they were lucky to do that even when submerged because there were dozens of escort groups. And then, you know, there were many, many more. So there were hu- huge numbers of uh, aircraft and escort groups prior to D-Day and during D-Day um, clamping down on U-boat um, operations. And that's why they achieved hardly anything at all against uh, the invasion shipping. Mm, wow. In the end, you know. <laughs> Can you just talk to us about those sort of final um, few months of the war um, and the efforts against U-boats in those last days of World War Two? Well, obviously with the um, Allied invasion um, and the breakout and everything else and the gradual elimination of the ports um, breast uh, Cherbourg, or oh, sorry, not the elimination, but the, the capture of uh, places, um, and also in the south along the Atlantic coast of France, where U-boats had been based, uh, the, the Germans could see what was coming. So they actually withdrew um, their U-boats from the French Atlantic ports um, and uh, from Brittany or wherever they were, and sent them to either home to the Baltic, or they sent them to Norway. And so the focus, really, the contest between the Allies and the, um, the U-boat force by then was uh, in those waters um, like the Baltic, the Kattegat, and also you know, off, off um, Bergen and elsewhere uh, in Norway. So that's where a lot of action happened. And that's where um, not only Allied aircraft were trying to sink um, U-boats in the comparatively shallow waters of the Baltic, uh, but also um, British submarines were hunting other submarines. And um, so uh, a major effort that the British submarines were trying to prevent was, of course, German technology such as um, rocket-propelled aircraft, ME-262 fighter jet technology, uh, Mercury uh, special trained engineers that would help the Japanese war effort in the Pacific carry on. And uh, there was a major effort made by the Germans to send jet engines as well as all that jet technology and also even plans for uh, Italian mini-submarines to Japan to see if the Japanese could use it. And uh, so the Allies were absolutely uh, determined to interrupt and destroy this effort to help the Japanese under a thing, and the Germans called this Operation Caesar, and they initiated it in December 1944. And so um, the um, intercepts of uh, German signals, the, uh, the work of uh, the codebreakers, and all the, the information being fed through uh, to the Allied warfare was very um, useful in trying to find out which of these German submarines were trying to get out and away to Japan. Um, and so 
in early 1945, there was a boat called U-864 um, that was trying to um, break out and then sail to Japan with all this uh, technology and information and engineers, whatever you want to call them, on board. And so uh, HMS Ventura, commanded by a guy called James Launders, was sent to sort of loiter off Norway around where U-864 would be. And they had good information on, on her movements. And eventually, uh, through uh, prowling uh, the seas off Norway, uh, close to uh, Bergen, a Ventura detected where U-864 was because she had an engine problem to make a lot of noise and closed in and famously uh, fired um, torpedoes while submerged and whilst U-864 was submerged, which was uh, a unique in terms of success, a unique event because Ventura managed to destroy U-864 or rather sink it, send it to the bottom and um, and it worked. And it was, I think, you know, it's an incredible achievement to be able to track and sink a U-boat in World War II uh, with another submarine. And it was a real milestone. And it remains the only time in history that a submarine has sunk another one while both were submerged. And of course, hunter-killer submarines today, nuclear-packed submarines, that is one of their prime roles. But even to today, thank goodness, that's never happened. So it remains. Ventura's attack and destruction of uh, U-864 remains the only time that that has ever happened. And that was part of efforts to eliminate um, the flow of materials to Japan as guided by, by the code breakers. Uh, because there was another, there was another uh, attack on a um, U-boat off Norway, which was the last German naval vessel sunk in World War II, which was when uh, John Roxburgh captain of HMS Tapir, spotted U-486, but she was on the surface and sank her with a torpedo salvo, uh, salvo and um, she exploded. And that was the end of um, certainly the Navy versus Navy um, war in, uh, in Western waters um, in terms of submarines versus enemy units, certainly. And there was fighting, of course, went on uh, right to the end. Um, and aircraft in particular were able to prowl over the Baltic and sink uh, various submarines as they tried to break out. Um, and that was that. That was the end of the war for the German U-boat force, really. Wow. Yeah. I mean, quite a quite a, a time, really, isn't it? So it's like, yeah, so much happened. I mean, it, your book has been uh, sort of fantastic just to try and get sort of my head around that period. It's been, yeah, it, it, it's certainly not as, um, there's a lot of things we take for granted, like what you were just saying about the um, U-boats being uh, sunk underwater. Yeah. When you watch yeah. movies, you kind of, in a way, take that for granted, yeah. but it's actually quite a complicated thing in real yeah. life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as we say, it's, it's just as well that it, never happened again because it means we've been the world would be in trouble if boats were out there attacking each other but certainly as as um touched on in another book i wrote called hunter killers um for 40 years or more uh, the the aim of um submarines during the cold war and you know this is where your hollywood reference comes in i guess mm. was to stay on the 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 you know the, the in the stern arcs of a of an enemy submarine detected trail that submarine under the seas as as long as you could and then if it showed signs of launching missiles or uh, making an attack you then sank it in a submarine versus submarine uh, dogfight perhaps and that's what these submarines of the cold war were like um, they would were designed to be high speed 
could stay submerged for as long as you like, as long as the crew could take it and the food lasted, and they mm. would prowl the seas looking to take out um, the opposition submarines. But of course, for all that effort and the billions of rubles and pounds and dollars spent during the Cold War, it never happened. But um, during World War II, um, you know, the fairly simple diesel electric submarine venturer managed to find uh, the enemy boat and uh, carry out the deed, and that was it so far. I mean, there have been attacks since, obviously, since World War II, as covered in the book, um, uh, against, uh, in fact, three by submarines against um, surface ship that we know of and uh, for sure. Mm. Well, Ian, thank you so much for all that. So, you know, one thing I sort of noticed when reading your book, while you were researching the book, you discovered a sort of family connection to the submarine service. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? But I don't have any great uh, connections to admirals and U-boat aces, um, certainly not U-boat aces, or <laughs> submarine aces um, in my family. But it was it was a story that had been handed down um, by my father that his his cousin's husband, uh, a guy called Peter Cloughley, uh, was a submariner during World War II. And like many things you hear from your parents, you never, I mean, we don't get the chance to do a Who Do You Think You Are, that BBC TV show where they take famous people off to dig into their their family history. We don't get the chance to do that. We don't have the time in our ordinary lives. And I don't even have time to do it on mine, really. Uh, but my father, my late father, had mentioned this to me. And so when I was at the Royal Navy Submarine Museum doing research into this book um, way back uh, a few years ago, I said to uh, George Malcolmson, who was the archivist there, I've got this name, you know, of this guy, Peter Cloughley, and I've, I've been told that he was a submarine officer um, by my, my dad uh, because um, he was, you know, um, curious himself about uh, what his um, cousin's um, husband had, had done during the war. So can we look him up? So George was able to take me and show me some records. And he really was um, a submariner, which is great. And he was an officer, a young officer. And at the end of the war, and he was 20-year-old and had been in a submarine called HRS Unsparing um, shortly before the war, the end of the war. But the, the curious thing about it, the very interesting thing, was that in June 1945, after the war had ended, he was actually assigned to a U-boat, as the crew of a U-boat, as it were. And this was a boat called U-2529, which had surrendered and was taken to uh, uh, Northern Ireland um, and um, interned, as it were, as booty, whatever you want to call it, and renamed N-27. And so he stayed there um, for the rest of the war. And when I mean the rest of the war, I mean from June to September 1945, because, of course, the war still raged in the Far East. And um, and he took helped take care of this um, uh, this boat uh, call that was U two five two nine and then became N twenty seven. But the other interesting thing um, is that N twenty seven was handed to the Soviet Union because the Allies split up uh, the Type twenty one U boats because she was a Type twenty one U boat, and because the Type twenty ones were so revolutionary that the uh, the British. Um, the Americans, the French, and the uh, the Russians, and and were decided they would like some of these advanced submarines, not just the Type 21, but others. And so um, this one went to uh, to Russia. I couldn't find out whether or not he'd actually sailed it to Russia, uh, but certainly N27 was handed over to the Soviets and was then commissioned into the Russian uh, Navy's Baltic Fleet as B27. 
And um, it was just one of those little wrinkles of um, history. Um, it was quite strange. You know, I've been researching and writing about submarine warfare, including the Cold War, for some years now. And so to have this fragment of a an indirect um, link to the submarines was really amazing to find out it was actually true and find out a little bit about it. And because I knew a bit about what happened at um, in Northern Ireland, where they kept the subs, um, the German submarines. A lot of them were scuttled, um, sunk, used for target practice. But then um, uh, some of them were handed over, the better ones, and served for quite some years in some of the fleets they were given to. So Peter's um, boat, um, I must admit, I didn't investigate any further what B-27 did, but Peter's boat served in the, in the Soviet Navy. And... Um, and the Royal Navy Submarine Museum is a is a, is a great um, place, and uh, you know anybody could go to that museum or any other you know naval or military museum or you know national national archives or wherever you want to go in the UK and put in a query. And you never know, you might come up with a much better story than that. Uh, you know, somebody that's really um, uh, been out there and uh, done things. Not that Peter didn't. I mean, he was he was in the submarine service at the end of the war, and anybody that served in a submarine. Um, at any time during wartime uh, was taking their life uh, in their hands and was really facing a lot of risks even at the end of the war you know it could still happen so uh, yeah I mean you know um, go along to a museum and see what you can find out so it was really good to find that out yeah fantastic well hats off to people in the submarine service because uh, it's definitely not an easy task it wasn't then I'm sure it certainly isn't much easier now um quick thing listeners can actually go and see some of the submarines that we've talked about they're sort of dotted around the globe and also there's even some of the ships that hunted submarines are, are dotted about as well are you able to tell us a little bit about those in the uk the uh the premier submarine to visit is um hms alliance at the royal navy submarine museum in gosport and that's uh, quite incredible it's quite a sensory experience as well because they've got they've got um sounds and i believe smells as well of what a submarine would be like. So you go in one end and go through to the other. And they've got guys who served in the submarine to tell you what it was like. And uh, it's quite an experience and um, to walk through there. And um, sometimes some people that visit do probably think that it's a little bit too much like being in a submarine. But, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it is definitely a good uh, exhibit to go and see. And there's all sorts of other things there at the museum. And then down in Plymouth, um, there is a former nuclear-powered hunter-killer submarine that um, uh, you can visit, but it has to be by appointment. And that's uh, you can go on the internet and just put in HMS Courageous. And if you ever come to Plymouth and you can get a group of you together, you can ask them if you can visit. And that's quite an amazing time capsule of, um, of the Cold War, and it's brilliantly done. Mm. And there are plans. Uh, I don't know how far they've got to um, make sure that Courageous is more accessible and... Uh, is the centre of a maybe a more a more complex and swept up um, Cold War exhibit. So that's down in Plymouth, mm. and then around the world mm. you've got um, various submarines that are. Uh, you've got the Northwest, the nuclear powered submarine in America. It's uh, well worth a visit. France has got uh, submarines as well. Uh, so they are they are dotted around the world. In Germany, I think there's a, there's a Type 21 uh, submarine still um, on show. Uh, if you want to go and visit one in Germany. And so they are out there. These relics are there and some of them are in good condition and actually quite a, quite a time capsule, quite an experience to go back in time and 
find out what it was like to actually be in one of those boats. Yeah, fantastic. I remember as a child going to the um, Royal Navy Submarine Museum, and I certainly walked through, what was the submarine there again? Alliance, HMS Alliance. Alliance, yeah. yeah I've certainly been through HMS Alliance, I think, when I was about nine. So I think it's definitely worth well, revisiting. Changed, yeah, yeah, and it's changed since then. I mean, they have really have um you know up the game as it were with the the lighting and the sounds and as i say i think i think even the smells of uh mm. breakfast <laughs> cooking and hopefully not others uh so i mean there's you know there's huge effort put into it so uh yeah and I, hopefully i haven't missed any notables out because uh, uh there are of course surface ships around but um submarines yeah. and a few of them around yeah yeah well there's the restored is it masb 27 is potentially going right. back to normandy is yes. that right yeah. yes that's um yeah, that's that's a new one, and uh, we've actually featured that um, in the current edition of Warships magazine, and also in the next one, because she was. Um, remember, we were talking about the X twenty three, and the effort to um, to actually uh, suss out what was going on over in Normandy uh, with the beaches and the defences. Well, she was involved in that effort at Omaha Beach, and would land people to assess uh, the scale of defences that the uh, the Germans had put there, and a strange connection. That um, that I have, and in fact my magazine has with uh, with that vessel, is that our editor at large, a chap called Jonathan Eason, used to live in um, MASB twenty seven. That was his home for more than twenty years. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> and he um, he saved uh, the uh, the craft from being cut up. And Jonathan is an award winning um, um, maritime photographer who's covered the America's Cup and things like that. And, you know, he's, he's a former Merchant Navy officer and a great guy. And um, he, he just loves the sea. So for quite some years, he lived aboard um, MASB 27. Uh, he called her Moonlight and basically converted her to this, this house for himself and his uh, family. Um, but then he decided to move ashore and they sold um, the vessel to one buyer, who then more recently has uh, then um, conveyed it or sold it, um, handed it over to um, another uh, enterprise. So there is a a D-Day vessel that went in close to explore the the beaches, and they've they've just recently conducted uh, sea trials um, Mm. with MASB 27, and I believe she's going back across um, the... um, back across the channel to, to the same seas where she was some time ago. And uh, what's incredible for me is that like when the mag- my magazine first started, I would visit Jonathan in his, um, in his, uh, in his torpedo boat, which was quite a strange experience, uh, but absolutely um, fascinating. And, and then we would sit there and uh, look at photographs and talk about assignments we were going to do at Portsmouth. And now she's restored to a, um, a, a craft of war almost you know a replica craft of war restored craft of war and it's going to be back over there off the d-day beach it's quite incredible really that is no, that is that's brilliant that's brilliant for listeners who want to know more about masb 27 you can go to the charity's website that's restoring the ship and if you go to www.d-dayrevisited.co.uk there is a section on that website all about MASB 27 and its restoration. Um, how is your magazine covering the sort of D-Day anniversary? Um, I have, I mean, in the past, I have, um, I have been over there, 94, 2004, but I'll be honest, this time we've, we're doing uh, historical stuff rather than sending anybody across. Mm. Um, but certainly uh, we're looking at how 
the battleships um, played their part. The uh, the war off off the off the shores at sea a little bit. Um, the submarines, the you know the V threes. We look at all those naval aspects and also you know the preparation and the logistical side of it as well. In, in addition, we've got three special features in various editions um, coming out. But I will say that you know to go to the Normandy uh, beaches and to visit them uh, in the company of veterans is a humbling and quite incredible experience. And obviously there's not many of them left now, but uh, certainly in 1994 and the 50th, um, Mm. it was, um, there were a lot of them left. And I had some um, unique experiences. Um, I remember we, I was a newspaper reporter then, and we went to the beach where uh, famously uh, the commandos came ashore with Lord Lovett and a guy called Bill Millen, who was his piper. And if you've seen the longest day, um, he pipes ashore the commandos. And when we walked onto this beach, this was in June, on June the 6th, 1994, Bill Millen was in the sand dunes playing his bagpipes. Uh, and all of a sudden, all these um, uh, veteran commandos in their smart, in their blazers and ties and all the rest of it, um, wearing their green berries, emerged from all the cafes and kind of walked across the uh, the sands to sort of converge on Bill. And it was a spine-tingling moment to see these guys 50 years on sort of answering the call of his bagpipes uh, and then um actually the, the night before we um went down to see that beach uh, where um bill piped them ashore um we met uh, myself and the photographer a guy called tony carney um we had come across with the uh, reenactment invasion fleet aboard a royal navy warship and uh, which was quite spectacular in itself and um, I sat on the bridge roof of the warship next to the son of Admiral Ramsey, who was the overall naval commander-in-chief of um, of the invasion. And so I had a chat with him. And then uh, the Royal Yacht Britannia was in front of us and a Lancaster came over and bombed us with petals. And there were all these allied warships either side. So we kind of reenacted, uh, this is in 94, that kind of voyage across. But we had neglected, foolishly, to find ourselves a hotel stay oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so not realizing you know this is partly one of the reasons you know i'm not going this year because i realize you know how crowded it gets and so mm. tony and i uh, were ho- probably hoping we'd, we'd be put up on board this warship which went up the can canal to can itself but we weren't important enough obviously because <laughs> we're just you know a reporter and a photographer we were put off at weestrom and we sort of wandered around trying to think <laughs> where are we going to stay and we ended up in what tony called a shed which was actually more of a hut. <laughs> and the incredible thing was, in this shed were gathered these dispossessed people who couldn't find anywhere to stay on the eve of D-Day, including a mother and her children and a guy who was doing a cycling tour. But the incredible thing was, there were two veterans in there, who one of whom had travelled from Australia all the way to, um, to Normandy and had nowhere to stay. And they were in this shed that was um, at the port that was used for um, you know lorry drivers and people like that to keep down. So Tony and I gave up our sleeping bags to these these old chaps and we're sort of you know, honored to at least help them, you know, get through the night uh, before the anniversary of the following day. So we were kind of talking to them about their stories because they'd come ashore on sword beach, you know, 50 years earlier as young men, you know, so that was an incredible experience. And then in the summer I, I went uh, with guys who'd served in the 43rd Wessex division. I visited um, a place called Hill 112 where they fought a battle against the Waffen SS. And to go to the battlefields um, with 
those guys, um, I mean, they were in their 70s then, and walk the same places where they'd been on patrols and, you know, fighting patrols and fought the Germans was incredible. And the, and the cemeteries themselves are um, deeply moving to visit too. So I've waffled on a bit there, but that's... Um, no, no, not at all. Yeah. Well, it just reminds me, I mean, I, I spent most of my childhood holidays um, on the beaches of Normandy. Right, oh, did you? Uh, we, used, we used to go to Aramanche, um, right. which was where the Mulberry Harbour was. Yeah. Um, and I remember the D-Day Museum there. Um, and, um, yeah, we used to stay at this hotel... Hotel Plug here, yeah. Hotel de la Marine, which was a fantastic hotel. Had the view out of, of the beach and stuff. It's off, opposite the museum. And um, and I was at the D-Day celebrations in Portsmouth in 1994 when Bill Clinton, then president, was uh, there of his motorcade. Yeah. Um, and it is, yeah, I mean, I've only ever had some limited experience when I'm young with veterans, but it is amazing when you meet people who are actually there. Because I always, as a, a child, World War I, sorry, World War Two was always black and white images and stuff like that. And it wasn't actually until I saw um, the Steven Spielberg film, Saving Private Ryan, that really, for me, put World War Two in technicolor and in a kind of more relatable way. Um, because it's always been a bit of an abstract thing as a child, but just seeing lots of relics. But it, for some reason, it took a while for it to really become real for me and it was just um yeah but those trips are amazing yeah um, and i highly recommend anybody to go to the normandy beaches yeah. and, and i remember um omaha beach it just had this eerie feel and it could have been just an atmospheric thing on that day but so many lives were lost on omaha beach it just and you couldn't hear any birds singing it might well have been a coincidence but it was just a feeling of death there that was um quite profound i remember when i was young going there yeah i mean i've, I've um in the current edition of my uh, mag, I'm plugging it again. But in the current edition of my mag is a is a huge it's a picture I've used across a spread of um, American soldiers at a place called Tor Point, uh, where there's a hard mm. standing opposite um, Devonport, which is part of Plymouth, which is where the massive dockyard and naval base still is. But the American um, effort uh, training and preparation for D-Day was in the west of. Um, England and also Wales and elsewhere, obviously, as were others. But what's forgotten, uh, especially even even down in Plymouth, really, is the scale of the involvement of, um, I mean, the scale of the British. The British planned, executed and put more troops ashore on D-Day itself. And it was overwhelmingly a British operation. But the Americans Mm. put 50,000 ashore, I think, and the British put 70,000 plus. So um, that's that aspect. But when you think that in Plymouth, there were 21,000 um, American sailors based in Plymouth, a massive naval facility, alongside the Royal Navy, the Canadian Navy, and all the others, the Poles, whatever. And then there were thousands, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of American troops in Britain. And the main focus for a lot of the training, including the tragic uh, excise Tiger incident where mm. E-boats or S-boats, if you want to call them that, attacked um, sea transports, landing troops ashore, um, in Devon and killed hundreds of them. I mean, they left from Plymouth to go there to make that landing. And it's forgotten, really, although there is a memorial here, the scale of what was here. And this photograph that I managed to find in the US Naval Historical Centre archive, the reason that I guess it's obscure in a way is because it's listed as a port in southern England. They don't say it's Plymouth. But when I opened this photo, I saw that it was of hundreds of American troops on the hard standing at Tor Point, with all the landing craft circling um, in the river, because the Tamar is a very big river, and then destroyers 
and the whole dockyard and, and actually Devonport uh, along the other bank. And these guys, they look so young and they're so real. And the picture is so, there's such clarity in the picture that they're not, these, these are not old men. These are the young men who are about to get on board the very landing craft that you see there to go off. And it says just before D-Day, and they would have belonged to the 1st Infantry Division or the, uh, or the 4th Infantry Division um, or the 29th. I mean, I'm not you know, that much of an expert. I can't remember what I wrote. But they, would have, they, could, they probably went to Utah Beach, some of them. But some of them could have mm. gone to Omaha, Omaha Beach. Mm. And so those, mm. those landing craft took them out to the, up the river to the assault ships or out into the sound. And then within you know, a day or so, they went across in massive convoys uh, of, of, of troop ships and landing ships to Utah and Omaha. And so to see this photograph of these guys um, assembling, um, and they're, they're quite chaotic. They've got all their, their, some of them are sitting down looking a bit bored. Others are having a cigarette. Some have got their, uh, their rifles and they look at them. They look so young and it's so real and it looks like something that was taken yesterday that you think, my God, you know, it was a massive effort. And 36,000 troops went from uh, the River Tamar, Plymouth and points north, you know, east, whatever, up that river to Normandy. And so when you think that um, in Britain, in, you know, where, where Clinton went in 1994 mm. and all those other heads of state, the focus is Portsmouth, and it, quite rightly so. I mean, it was an armed camp, the whole of the south coast of England. But there was also right along um, the southwest and, the, you know, right along to the west of Britain and then, uh, and then beyond Wales and, you know, subsequent waves of troops. It was an absolutely staggering um, effort. And, uh, and I don't think we can ever imagine you know, the scale of it, or, you know, thinking of casualties, you know, not only in Omaha Beach, but also the scale of of um, fighting on sword and, um, yeah, I mean, Utah, I think there were 200 people killed there, but there were hundreds, many hundreds, um, if not thousands, killed on the other beaches, you know, you've got Juno, Gold, and Sword, you know, they, they also uh, saw some quite heavy combat, so um, it, mm. was, it was um, extraordinary, and they got there without the Germans knowing they were coming, and that's the incredible yeah. thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, even I mean, God, the engineering feat of the installation of the Mulberry Harbour, yeah, um, is just amazing and mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. And I, I agree with you that um, you know, I mean, the veterans and thinking of them as young men, um, that's the thing. I mean, uh, sort of uh, sending your mind back to to think of them as nineteen year olds and seventeen year olds, and you know, and trying to think, you know, what was it? What was it like for them to be like? I mean, I inter- I've done, in the past, I've done a lot of interviews with them. Uh, although I do naval stuff, I have interviewed a lot of D-Day veterans from the Army uh, as well, and the, the Marines, the Royal Marines, and the Airborne Forces. And one of the most incredible stories uh, that I ever heard was, um, again, this was in 1994, because I worked on various supplements for the newspaper I was, I was writing for. I was sent to interview a guy from the um, East Yorkshire Regiment, and um, I went out to his house. I mean, I went to see quite a lot of them in their homes. Um, they, as I say, they were in their 70s, so they had good recollection of what was going on. And I sat in his lounge with him, and his wife um, sat in the chair near us. And so I talked to him about um, what happened. And he was in the first, I believe, if my recollection is correct, he was in the first wave ashore in his battalion. And uh, she he was hit in the knees. There was a machine machine gun burst that hit him in the knees and took out his knees. And he was then dragged up the beach and then left at the top of the beach while the rest of his troops went in. And it took days for him to get back to a hospital in um, Britain. 
And he was telling me that that was the end of his war. His war lasted from coming out of the landing craft, down the ramp, into the water, and that was it. And his wife had never heard this story at all. And, and I was just quite, you know, stunned by that. And she mm. was, you know, obviously they were both, um, she was quite emotional about it. But she, and she said, well, thanks for sitting there and talking to him because I'd never heard him talk about it. And that's the other thing, you know, how many people never really talked about it? Well, yeah, there's a, you, you hear about these things, don't you? A lot of people just didn't want to talk about it. I mean, my grandfather, who was in World War One, unfortunately, he had passed away before I was born. So I hear a lot of things sort of second or third hand, but he never really talked about his World War One experiences. I know basic strands. Um, he was in the Middle East, and there's a story of him uh, getting stung by a hornet at Jerusalem Station, right. which at the time he thought he'd been shot. Um <laughs> <laughs> and things like that but um but that's all, all i've ever heard and it's um i mean i need to do some digging and see if i can find the war records and things but a lot of people have had these amazing well not amazing sorry had these horrific life-changing experiences and a lot of them didn't really want to talk about it um and in some ways it's sad that they didn't because uh, there's a lot of history that we're not going to learn um but it's yeah i don't know it's 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 a pretty um it's just an amazing thing to think about when you do meet people who actually experience it. I did, I've certainly spoken and met people who've actually been at D-Day and it is just like, wow, you talked to somebody who was actually living that experience that you read about in the museum a few weeks ago and yeah. it is quite mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It is, yeah. And, and as you're saying, there aren't many left now no, either. So no, it's, no. Um, yeah. no. Well, look, Ian, thank you. Thank you so much. We've spent quite a long time chatting, but thank you. Really appreciate that. So just wrapping up, um, where where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work? Uh, I've got my own uh, website, which is uh, com, or um, just look at whatever's on mm. um, you know Amazon or whatever that's got the books. I, I have just finished another book, which I'm not yet. Uh, talking about and it's not it's not about a naval event it's a famous battle in world war Two. so um i'm not sure i mentioned too much about it yet you get a bit superstitious but that does actually draw on um um some remarkable interviews that i i did conduct with veterans in world war Two, and we're going to get it out before the end of the year and in fact before the anniversary not it's not about d-day but uh yeah um but i found that an incredibly moving thing to write and People will be surprised because I'm supposed to be a, a naval historian, but I'm having a go at something else, which is a subject close to my heart. So, um, yeah, just go on my website or, you know, have a look at some of these um, other websites and, you know, they're there. Brilliant. Well, I look forward to hearing about the new book when when you can talk about it. And, yeah, I will. Um, I'll tell you. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> no. Having me on. You know. No, my pleasure, Ian. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed that. And I think actually it's quite a nice packed episode. So um, I'm hoping we've we've done our bit to um, kind of mark the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Um, and obviously with the 80th anniversary of World War Two starting coming up. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was just looking at. Um, <laughs> I was just trying to work out how old I would be. Um, when the hundredth anniversary comes up in twenty years, <laughs> right? Like, I shouldn't think about that. No, I mean, I hope I, I live that long because um, it would be interesting to go back to Normandy for the hundredth anniversary. But yeah, anyway, yeah you might want to go before that. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> make sure your knees still work. Yeah, yeah I know, but it's it's weird. Yeah. yeah, but Ian, thank you so much for your time today. I've really really enjoyed that. Thank you. Great to be on. Like what we're doing? Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast.
For more information about the podcast, visit our website at drycleanercast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.